You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome back to Understanding Sin and Evil. In this episode, we're going to be continuing with Ben Sira. I'd like to again thank Melissa for joining me and joining us. Hi, everybody. And if you remember in the last episode, when we heard Ben Sira about Ben Sira in a specific uh, context, which was Ben Sira chapter 15, where Ben Sira directly addresses the problem of evil. He says, don't, rather the problem of sin. He says, don't say my sin is from God. God hates sin. So what can you say? And he says, God put you in the control of your yetzer. Again, which seemed to beg the question, but Yetzer seemed to mean either a character or a way of thought. In other words, you have a specific character. And then Ben Sira goes on to say that you have the choice. You can do what you wish. A person can essentially choose between fire and water, between life and death. A person can choose to do the good thing and not the bad thing. In other words, you may have a character, you may have an inclination one way or the other, but the choice is yours. And as I mentioned last time, that's an argument that actually I hear often when I speak to people with specific religious tradition, namely Orthodox Jews. That's usually what I hear. We may have an evil inclination, but the choice is ours. We have free will as the, the solution to the problem of sin. Now, what we're going to see is that even in the thought of Ben Sira himself, we actually have a whole range of solutions. You know, I'm going to stop and say something about ancient authors and also something about modern thinkers as well. We in the modern world, and that I think still includes a lot of modern academic thinking, when we explore a certain thinker or a certain writer, we want everything to fit. We want him to believe the same thing all the time. And if he doesn't, we have to explain why actually he does. Really, this works with this because really it's saying the same thing, even when it's not saying the same thing. Now, in the ancient world, personally, from what I have read and the text I have studied, there was not the same need to be consistent. Ancients did not think they had to be consistent throughout everything they wrote or throughout one work. They were contextual. If a certain answer works in situation A, but not in situation B. They'll describe situation A, say the answer, but in situation B, they believe something completely different. Now I'm going to take a leap and I'm gonna say something else. I think for modern people also, what they believe one should do is also highly context specific. It's just, we like to think we're completely consistent all the time. And I think that's more clear to someone who's coming from a religious tradition because in religion itself, we see so many contradictions. I can only speak really for my own religious tradition, which is Judaism. I personally see the contradictions in Judaism as reflecting the contradictions in the world and in life. So I personally think the contradictions can can highlight the struggle that it is to be human. If you'll allow me a little uh, philosophical rant, so for example, let me give an example that pertains to source of sin and also to Judaism. If I go up to any modern Orthodox Jew, I will say, do you have free will? And they'll say, yes. I can pretty much guarantee you they will say yes. I'll say, so you have the complete 
free will and choice whether to do a good or bad? And I'll say, yes. And I'll say, so you don't need God's help always to do good. You don't have to. And so they'll probably say, well, you know, God's help is certainly a good thing. You might come to a real situation where you're tremendously tested, but no, generally on a, on a daily basis, you're supposed to do the right thing. And I'll say, but yet you say at the end of your blessings every morning, you say in your prayers, God help me against the evil inclination, right? God help me against the evil inclination, help me do good, say, yo, say me. and this is part of your prayer. Do you believe that when you say it? Now, some people will say, well, I never think about the prayers while I'm praying them, right? <laughs> I was like, well, I just say it. You know, it's there on the page. <laughs> but a lot of people will realize that as they're saying it, they absolutely believe it. They are really asking God for help. And in that moment, and this is something we're going to see in the ancient world, in Second Temple literature, we will see again that in prayer, people ask God for help, even if outside of prayer, they're talking about how the choice is yours. In prayer, we are normally in a situation of supplication and of smallness, you could say, and of helplessness. That is almost a condition, you could say, of the genre of prayer. And that's part of the inconsistency we can have in a certain mindset. Now, I would say that not just the religious mindset has that sort of contradiction, that even in a secular mindset, you can ask someone a series of questions where you see that they'll believe something in one situation, they'll believe something else in a different situation. But it's very clear when we can point to a philosophy as well as a text. And it's even clearer when we look at a single text like Ben Sira, like we will do now, as we see that depending on what he's discussing, he describes the source of sin or the source of evildoers in different ways. To me, the act of asking for help to be good shows a desire to be good, which is already your choice. It's still, to me, that still shows an element of choice there that you would ask for help. I actually think that that, the way you're talking about choice, is really reflected in these passages. And, and I've studied a lot of prayer of the Dead Sea sect, and certainly they have that attitude, and not just, not just them, but there's a general idea in Second Temple works that you can be righteous even if you're sinning. So what does it mean to be righteous? And the answer is, well, you want to do good, and you're chosen, you're one of the people who that's your goal to do good, and yet you're sinning, right? So you can say, oh God, I'm righteous, please help me not sin. Or, oh God, I'm righteous, please forgive my sin, right? So even though you may have sinned, you're still righteous. So what makes you righteous? And I think that is the, the idea that, well, I'm righteous, I'm one of the righteous because my purpose is to do good, even if I don't always get there, right? I think that that is actually true, that that, that it reflects that idea, what you're saying, and I think that's a good point to make, that prayer presupposes a certain choice, I've made a choice to want to do good, right? And now I'm asking God for help in my choice. And in fact, there's an idea that once you've made that choice, that's when God helps. Of course, that idea is in the Talmud, but it's also kind of reflected in Second Temple prayer as well. I'm struggling, so God, please help me. I've made the choice to pray, and this is my choice to ask you when I pray. So it shows to me a desire to not yeah. sin. Yeah, even though I'm not sure they would say, well, the choice to pray, like praying is actually, given that we're talking about a period where Jews in general are monotheistic, they're, they're taking for granted that there's a God who they can pray to. They're praying for help. They might be praying in praise of God, but they're praying because they want help. So that's less of a choice, more of, uh, well, this is something I can do to get help from God, 
But the fact that they're praying, that probably feels like less of a choice and more of an act. Well, that's natural. But the fact is the mindset that I am righteous because I have chosen, right? Like we saw much earlier in the episodes where the idea that in the Dead Sea sect, the fact that you've chosen to be part of the community, right, that means that you are one of the righteous. Right? So there is an initial choice, and it's true that prayer comes after that initial choice. No one's going to say, oh, yeah, well, I choose to do evil, and I've always chosen to do evil, and now I'm praying for help. That's not something that you have in ancient literature. In modern literature, maybe, <laughs> but not so much in ancient literature. So again, us, us expecting consistency in an ancient author is anachronistic to my mind. We have to allow that author to deal with things contextually because that is in fact what ancient writers and thinkers do. And again, I would argue that modern thinkers do that as well, even if when they write or when they go on the record, they try to be consistent because we have this modern value of consistency in all things. Everything has to work. So let's go back to Ben Sira. And now I'm going to read from a passage that is quite different in terms of how he sees, not necessarily sin, but perhaps more people who do sin. I'm going to read actually the, the translation of the Hebrew, which is very close to the translation of the Greek in this case, and is actually restored also on the basis of the Greek. I'm reading from Ben Sira 33, verses 13 to 15. It's part of a longer passage that starts in verse 7. Like clay in the hand of the potter to grasp at his will, so is a person in the hand of his creator to be set smooth before him. Opposite evil is good and opposite life is death. Opposite a good man is a wicked man and opposite light is darkness. Look at all the works of God. All are two by two, one opposite the other. Okay, so what are we seeing here? Again, what do we see here? Why are there wicked people? Again, I'll read it to you. First of all, it starts with a kind of what we would usually think of as a deterministic statement that people are in the hand of the creator. And then right afterwards, it starts talking about evil and good. Now, the idea of people being in the hand of the creator, like clay in the hand of the potter, of course, reflects the verse in Jeremiah, verses in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 4 and 6. And if the vessel that he was making with clay in the potter's hand was spoiled, he would make it into another vessel, such as the potter saw fit to make. Oh, house of Israel, can I not deal with you like this potter, says the Lord? Just like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hands, O house of Israel. So the idea that people are in God's hands like clay in the hand of the potter is, of course, not new to Ben Sirah. It's reflecting a biblical statement. So it's not uh, saying something new that people are in the hand of God. But the question is, why are there evildoers? According to Ben Sira in this passage, not because of free will, but because opposite evil is good and opposite life is death. Opposite a good man is a wicked man and opposite light is darkness. Look at all the works of God. All are two by two, one opposite the other. So what he seems to be saying here is that the reason for evil is that there's good. You have to have everything in pairs. And that kind of shows the amazing you know, nature of the works of God. However, and remember what I said just a little while earlier, we need to look at the context. What is the problem Ben Sira is trying to fix here? What is he trying to solve? Let's go back to the beginning of the passage, which starts with verse 7. 
Why is one day different from the other when all of the year receives light from the sun? By the Lord's knowledge, they are judged or separated, and there are holidays among them. In other words, what, why should one day be, be better than any other day, and yet there are holidays? Some of them he blessed and sanctified, and some he designated as ordinary days. So too a person is a vessel of clay, and from earth humankind is formed. The wisdom of the Lord separates them, and he places them as inhabitants of the earth, and he distinguished their paths. Some of them he blessed and raised up, some of them he sanctified and brought near himself. Some of them he cursed and brought low and pushed them away from their place. Okay, so the passage starts with a question. Why are some days holier than others? And then we go right to the real, the real heart of the question, which is why are some people holier than others when they should all be equal? And the answer to both questions is the same. That's the wisdom of God. God separates out the holy from the unholy. And then he, he continues that by saying divine wisdom that determines the difference between days and humans is also reflected in this kind of duality of the universe. It's God's wisdom that says some days are holy. It's God's wisdom that says some people are holy. And it's God's wisdom that everything is in pairs. There's the good and the bad are in pairs. How can we read this passage? What is the purpose here? What is he trying to defend. And what it sounds like he's trying to defend is some group's elected status, some group being holier than other groups. What could that group be? It could be Jews. In my opinion, probably isn't because he's arguing to Jews. It is, to my mind, probably he's uh, defending the holiness of priests, of Kohanim. That is what it seems to be to me, that he is saying, why should one person be a holy person who is a Kohen? and some other person is not, that doesn't seem fair. And his answer is, this is the wisdom of God. And then he continues with the idea that some people are elected and others are not for the same reason that righteous and wicked coexist, the world consists of opposing pairs. So you have some people are chosen, some people are not. Some people are holy, some people are not. Some people are good, some people are evil. So God creates this harmonious world of opposites where he determines the existence of the elected and the non-elected, and where he allows the existence of righteous and sinner. I'm wondering if he's seeing opposites so that he can define each end by using a contrast. Like, would he be able to define holy without unholy? It's very interesting that you bring that up, because actually a lot of people connect what Ben is saying here to Stoicism and Stoic thought. And actually what Stoic thought is, says is pretty much what you just said. In other words, in Stoic thought, you must have bad to understand what good is. So that's why you need bad, right? Because bad is the absence of good. You have to know each in order to have, you, know, you have to know each in order to have the other, the opposite. What's interesting is that that doesn't seem to be what he's saying here. He's talking much more about this kind of beautiful duality as opposed to saying like this is the wonderful wisdom of God that we can't quite comprehend but we understand how perfect it is right as opposed to making the argument that well we need evil because otherwise we wouldn't understand what good is he says saying that everything is in twos right everything is in pairs so a Chrysippus who was the third head of the Stoic school he justified evil by saying that good can't exist without bad. And then he pairs the traits of human beings whose positive qualities can be appreciated through contrast with their lack. So he said, we wouldn't have bravery if we didn't know what cowardice is. 
right? Which is exactly what you're saying. That's Chrysippus, that's Stoic, that's in the Stoic school of thought. But what Ben Sira is, he's specifically not saying that. He's saying everything's in pairs. Isn't that amazing? In between the opposites. Does he see different degrees between each end or is he thinking only in opposites? That's a good question. I would guess that if you asked him, he'd say yes, but that it doesn't work very well in the passage that he's writing. Or it doesn't apply here. It's right. His whole point here is he really is talking about pairs. Because from his point, I don't think he would see a difference, let's say, between holy and not holy. Are there things in between? No, there's holy and there's not holy. There's a holiday and not a holiday. So for his argument here, there's good and there's evil. And it's interesting but because probably his attitude towards righteousness is something connected to what you said earlier, which is once you've made a choice for righteousness, then you're a good person, even if sometimes you mess up, right? But so then what could this idea be connected to if it's not connected to the Stoic school of thought that you were alluding to? It's one possibility is that it's connected to Pythagorean thought. Pythagorean thought, what we know about it seems to, in fact, kind of love this this idea of duality, this idea that everything in the universe exists in pairs because it's so symmetrical and correct. According to Aristotle, there is one specific Pythagorean group who referred to 10 different pairs of opposite principles, which include light and darkness and good and evil. So you might say that what Ben Sira is doing is he's operating in a context where people know this idea that you have these 10 pairs of opposite principles, light and darkness, good and evil, and he's adding holy and not holy because his, the purpose of his argument is to say, how can there be people who are holy when there are other people who aren't holy? And the way he's proving it is, look at all the pairs we have in the universe. This is the will of God. Okay. So the idea is that that's, that he's using what sounds like this kind of deterministic view, oh, there are evildoers and there are righteous people as this kind of, but he's really using it as a way of explaining how there can be holy or sanctified and non-sanctified people. And again, you, you could read it as talking about Jews versus non-Jews. I think that he's actually talking about priests versus non-priests. That's what I think. Again, because his audience is Jews. So I don't think he has to argue with Jews about Jews being holy. I think he's arguing with them about what makes priests holy. And I want to point out that really what's at the center of this argument, again, is that people can be sanctified and blessed, or they could be brought low and cursed, but their actions aren't really mentioned. There are evildoers and righteous people in the world, but he said, it doesn't say that what comes from God is what they do. What comes from God is whether they're blessed and exalted or cursed and brought low. So it's not really particularly deterministic, I would argue. Some people have said, oh, here Ben Sira is talking about the deterministic view of good and evil. And I think he's not. I think he's trying to explain holiness and non-holiness, which by definition has to be deterministic. It's got to come from God. And he's saying it's right because it reflects this Pythagorean idea, this universal idea of pairs. Holy and unholy, light and dark, good and evil. So if God determines who's holy and who's not holy and all the other attributes, then where does choice fit in? I think for Ben Sear, choice doesn't fit in there. Just like I can't choose to be a Kohen, right? I'm actually a bad Kohen, but uh, for all the good it does me. (laughs) But but I can't choose to be a Kohen just by choice. And that's his argument here. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about a situation where there is no choice and he will not allow choice here. 
He's not saying you can choose to be sanctified. Just like days cannot choose to be sanctified. They're holy or they're not. You're holy or you aren't. And if you see a holy person, you can't just say, well, that's unfair. You're going to be like, well, you know, that's the way God wanted it. That's the way I read Ben Sira here. And again, this goes back to, he doesn't need to be consistent. <laughs> he is not, he doesn't have to be consistent. And the truth is, this actually is not that inconsistent because you can say people have free will in what they do, but you can say, well, their status as holy or not holy. Remember, status as holy or not holy is not the same as status of a righteous person or an evil person. You can be perfectly righteous, but not be a priest. You can be perfectly righteous and not be a Jew, right? So the idea of being on a certain level of holiness from Ben Sears' point of view, that doesn't mean that you're not righteous. It just means that you're not one of the holidays, you know? You can be a perfectly good day. A nice, calm, beautiful Thursday. <laughs> but it doesn't do you any good. If you really want to be Yom Kippur, it doesn't help. It's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. Anyway, now there are also other references to the source of sin in the book of Ben Sira. And some of them are really interesting because we're going to get a whole a whole view of different views of sin, uh, many of which carry on to modern time, carry on in rabbinic literature, some carry on in Christian thought. And the first one of these that I'm going to discuss now is Ben Sira 2524, and I will read it to you. From a woman is the beginning of sin, and because of her we all die. Now, what are most people who are, certainly anyone coming from a, from let's say a Catholic or a Christian tradition, what is it talking about here from a woman's beginning of sin and because of her we all die? Eve and the apple, right? Or Eve and the fruit, right? It's, it's, it's all, we all die because of Eve. Now, we can see this as a reference to original sin, but we really need to actually read the context of what he's talking about here. And what he's talking about in this passage is how terrible and a bad wife can be. It's, it's a passage that describes the disaster of being married to an evil wife. And within that context, he says, from a woman is the beginning of sin, and because of her, we all die. Or we die together, we die alike. In the Hebrew, it's gavanu yachad. So, however, and this I heard from a professor of mine, and I agree, Mark Smith. He's awesome, look him up. And he noticed me, he said, well, isn't he referring to an idea of original sin that people know about, and he's using it in his argument against the wicked wife. In other words, he's talking about a wicked wife, but he's using a kind of a reference that everyone's used to, that, oh yeah, we all die because of a woman, because a woman messed up. Now, actually, this is referring to original sin in a different way than it is in its classic form, or its main classic form, because the idea of original sin in its classic form is everyone sins because of Adam's original sin. Here's everyone dies because of the original sin. And it, that's actually easier to read in the biblical account if you say, well, you know, everyone would have lived forever if they stayed in the Garden of Eden because they had to leave the Garden of Eden. Everyone dies and therefore death is because of the original sin and death is because of a woman because of course it's all Eve's fault. So this is an interesting place. This is possibly the first reference we have to this idea of original sin. Now, there's a Ben Sira, again, living around 200 BCE. I've said this before that we don't, do not have many references at all to this idea during the Second Temple period. This is a possible exception. From a woman is the beginning of sin, and because of her, we all die. And that is the one main exception to something that's definitely a Second Temple work, and that possibly refers to original sin. Uh, in a future episode, we're going to be delving into 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch, which were written after the destruction of the 2nd Temple, and talk a lot about original sin. But not yet, because we haven't gotten there yet, but soon. 
Stay tuned. So moving right along, I'm just going to very quickly talk about two other verses in Bensira, which also reflect aspects of sin that we had during this period. In Bensira 17.31, and this is one of the verses that we actually don't have in Hebrew, we have it only in the Greek, again, because not all of it survived in Hebrew. In Bensira 17.31, the sinning human is compared to the eclipsed sun. What is brighter than the sun? Even this thing fails, and flesh and blood will ponder evil. In other words, even the sun, which is so bright, sets. Just as the sun, which is bright, sets, people will consider doing evil. I actually, it's, it's just a, an amazing verse because there's so much behind it. If you say the sun is so wonderful and yet even the sun sometimes goes dark. People, they're capable of so much. They could do so much good and yet even people sometimes think of evil. It's, it's actually, it's actually in that interpretation, he thinks very highly of people. At the same time, he considers at least, consider at least planning for evil, he considers it pretty much inevitable as part of the human condition. And that's something that we talked about that we're going to see more elsewhere, thinkers during the Second Temple period, who think that the fact that people are people means that they're going to do bad or at least consider doing bad. And that's been Sierra here, even though I still, I love the analogy to the sun. You know, what do you expect? Even the sun goes dark. So that's been Sierra 1731. And finally, Let's look at another verse in Mansira where he's talking about controlling one's inclination. And again, this is a verse that we only have, that only survived in the Greek. Mansira 21, 11. He who keeps the law gains mastery over the object of his thought and consummation of the fear of the Lord is wisdom. So it's very possible, I'm going to read that again. He who keeps the law gains mastery over the object of his thought. And it's very possible that the object of his thought, which is, to enoematos autu is actually yetzel. In the Syriac translation, that's the word that's used, yatzle. The object of his thought is yatzle, which is very possibly translating yetzel. In other words, inclination. So he who keeps the law gains mastery, in that case, over his inclination, and consummation of the fear of the Lord is wisdom. So this idea that keeping the law allows you to control one's inclination to sin is very prominent in different types of Second Temple thought. It's prominent in Second Temple prayer, where we have this idea where the person in apotropaic prayer, prayers against, which is calling for God's protection against demonic forces, says, um, or against evil, the speaker says, you know, the laws of God are fighting within me with these demonic, with this demonic influence trying to make me sin. In other words, I've got the laws of God and they're fighting. And this idea that simply having the law, accepting the law, allows you to fight your inclination, allows you to not sin, is so prominent that later on we talk about 4th Ezra, the hero of 4th Ezra, who is Ezra, use, actually turns that argument on its head. The angel who's arguing with him says, you got the law, what do you want? And Ezra says, uh, and of course that's not the same as the biblical Ezra, it's a, a fake Ezra, it's a pseudepigraphic Ezra. Ezra says, no, we got the law and still we still had our evil heart, and what? so what can we do? But just the fact that Ezra has to argue against that idea in the later work, Fourth Ezra, shows just how prominent an idea this was in the Second Temple period, that having the law should be enough to control your inclination. And finally, and I, I see that I, I fibbed a little bit before, finally, we come to a passage which shows how strong the prayer genre is as going along with an idea that we need help in fighting our inclination to sin. 
Ben Sira, in 23, 2 to 6, he has a prayer. And in this prayer, the speaker asks for help to control his thought and heart, namely the sources of his desire to sin. I'm going to read for you. Who will set whips upon my thought and discipline of wisdom upon my heart so that they might not spare my faults of ignorance and he shall not let their sins go? O Lord, Father and God of my life, do not give me a lifting up of eyes and turn desire away from me. Let not the belly's appetite and sexual intercourse seize me and do not give me over to a shameless soul. So here the speaker explicitly asks God for help in setting whips upon his thought and discipline upon his heart in order to prevent future sins as well as any illicit sexual desire that might overtake him. And his tone is kind of hopeless. He says, oh, who will set whips upon my thought? What am I going to do? Someone has to help me. God, help me. This tone is frequently found in prayer. It doesn't mean that the person speaking is deterministic. It's this is what you do when you pray. You ask God for help against sinning and against the desire to sin. And that's what we see here when Ben Sira includes a prayer. That's the idea that the prayer reflects. This reminds me of teaching children and how... As teachers, we're always told, set the rules. So from the beginning, children want praise, they want discipline, they'll be happier. And it's usually true. A class is happier with very consistent rules and the teacher helping and guiding so that kids can make their own choices about if they're going to break or follow the rules. So what you're saying is the idea that the Torah or the law helps one control your inclination is the way you teach children. It reminds me a lot of children because we have to learn how to do the right thing and we need guidance. I don't think anybody is born knowing from the very start exactly what needs to be done and we all look for guidance especially when we're children. This reminds me a lot of that way of thinking. That's very interesting. It's really good to get your input on that on a different way of thinking about the idea that Torah or the law fights sin. That it actually is very logical in a way for anyone who teaches. We want to be taught. Yeah, that, that's, that's nice. I like that. I like that. Yeah. So thank you very much for that input. And now, so now what have we heard in this episode? We've heard that Ben Sira has a whole range of statements about sin that he uses in different contexts. And as I started, as I began saying, those contexts can frequently determine the way he talks about sin. So contrasting with our last episode where we talked about Ben Sira 15 and Ben Sira was talking about how everyone has free will despite having an, an inclination and he didn't say if the inclination was good or bad at least not apparently in the original but whatever your inclination you have the choice today we began with a statement that seems to say there are evildoers and righteous people as part of the universe possibly reflecting a Pythagorean idea, but certainly being used to serve the argument that there are holy and not holy people in the world as part of divine harmony and divine wisdom. And then we heard something about certain different aspects of sin. We heard a hint, possibly, of the idea of original sin, but less original sin and more original death. Um, We heard about how the law can help one control their own inclination to sin. And we're going to hear this a lot in this period. And finally, we saw once again that when it comes to prayer, the expressed attitude to sin is usually that one needs divine help to fight it. The petitioner calls out to God and asks for help fighting sin. So thank you again to Melissa 
for joining for joining us and asking questions. That was great. And everyone, I look forward to hearing your comments. Please come to the site, understandingsin.com. Leave your comments on the post because I love to hear that you're listening and I will respond as soon as I am able. So keep listening and thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.